Alright, hello there everyone, and welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. I'm Robert Winfrey, I am your host, and thanks again very, very much for being here. Let's get the spiel out of the way, guys. Wherever, give us a like, comment, subscribe, follow, rating, whatever podcast app you're on, uh, follow, please, <laughs> help us out. Uh, share us around. This is the other thing that uh, that you can do that will really help out. I know some of you have been listening for a long time. Uh, the biggest thing you can do to help at this point, you've, you do a lot. Let me start that off. You do a lot. You listen uh, when Lord knows you don't have to, and that that's a tremendous help. If you could tell people about us, the Internet's a thing. Share us on Facebook, Twitter. Uh, the, uh, tell your friends. Tell anybody that you think might be interested. If you're part of a some kind of a Facebook group or, you know, a what have you that is either a fan of mixed martial arts or you know someone within your group, uh, just let them know we're here. Let them know the show's a thing. Uh, that's a tremendous help as well. Uh, let's see. Might have been something else I wanted to say there. Nope. All right. So that's the usual. Got the spiel out of the way. You guys know the drill as far as that goes. And I appreciate your continued uh, support. So, On the agenda this evening, last night, UFC 259. What a weird, weird card that was, huh? This is what I get for getting excited about things, just for the record. I said this was a great card on paper. It was a great card on paper. I said, uh, you know, I, I thought 15 fights was too much, and I stand by that. This event was almost eight hours long, and I'll yell about that in a minute. Uh, but, said it was going to be great, and then we get a lackluster main event, a, what, minute and a half squash? How long was that? I forget how long even the co-main was. It wasn't long. Two minutes and three seconds. So, yeah, about a hundred seconds worth of squash. And the match that I think everyone, the fight that I was looking forward to the most, I think most people were looking forward to the most, ends in a disqualification. And I wanted to just, I was so irrationally mad about the end of Yon and Sterling that it soured me for the other two fights. Not that those two fights didn't do a whole lot, those two fights didn't do a whole lot to kind of redeem that, my mental state, but man, I, oof, I was so mad. Not, like, at anyone in particular, necessarily, but I was just really... Like, I had such a bad taste in my mouth after that. I was so mad. Ugh. And, yeah. Then the fight that kicked everything off was a dud. So, what can I say, guys? I was being forth... The UFC doesn't pay me anything. I was being forthright and honest when I said this was a great card on paper. The fact that it didn't manifest itself in that same way, what are you going to do? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to complain about it when I review the, <laughs> when I review things, because that's what I do here. Uh, it, there will be equal parts praise and complaint where I feel it necessary. So we'll go through all the results from that card, such as they were. Uh, preview, UFC on ESPN Plus 45 this coming week. Finally, knock on wood. Uh, we will be getting the return of Leon Edwards. He will be battling Bilal Muhammad. Yeah, so we'll preview that card. 
Then a couple of pieces of news, uh, some roster cuts, things of that nature. So that's what's on the agenda. And yeah, timestamps per usual will be in the description below. Uh, yeah, that's all I got for that. All right, let's go ahead and jump right into that. Main, so first up, UFC 259. Main event. Uh, Jan Blahovich defeats Israel Adesanya via unanimous decision. 149-46, 249-45s. Okay, this was not my scorecard. I have no faith in my scorecard. I, I want to say this straight and up front. I gave the first three rounds to Izzy, the last two to Jan. Um, I'm not sure about that. The first round, I, th I will stand by Izzy winning the third. And I... I feel good about giving him the first. Not great, but I feel okay about it. The second round, I'm pretty sure I was wrong. Uh, that, that, look, I'm, all I can do is, is own up to that one. I'm pretty sure I was wrong about the second. And then Jan pretty clearly wins the fourth and the fifth. So the right guy wins, ultimately, as far as that goes. This was a very, very kind of sedate fight. Um, I'm not sure. There's a couple of things that went on here. Uh... One, I think <laughs> this might be the new way to kind of mess with Israel Adesanya, given how faint heavy his offense is. Yoel Romero didn't react to anything that Izzy showed him. Jan reacted to everything. <laughs> it was almost comical. Every feint Izzy threw, Jan reacted to. And normally that's that will open things up. I don't, I don't know if Izzy. It, I think what might have saved Jan in this respect was he didn't necessarily react the same way every time to the same feint. What you do when you feint like that is you're trying to draw out a reaction so you can see it. If they react the same way again, then you can capitalize on their reaction. Jan didn't react the same way to the same series of feints every time necessarily. And I think that probably helped him. Uh, Jan's a patient fighter anyway. This is one of those things about his last few fights. He's not in a big hurry. Sometimes to his detriment. He almost lost that uh, Jacare fight because of it. But uh, it helped. It actually kind of helped him as far as you know dealing with Izzy, with uh, Adesanya here because he just he didn't get as rushed as some other people have fighting Adesanya and kind of you know, walked on to stuff. He got clipped really hard in the third round too and just kind of. Everybody talks about the, the big Polish power. That wasn't quite on display here. I mean, he hit Izzy probably more than most people have outside of, like, the Gaslam fight, which turned into a barn burner. And he certainly had success. Again, I have no objection to him winning the fight. But really, it was more his just kind of hard-headedness, and I mean that as a compliment. He took some shots that were non-trivial, and he actually said after the fact that Izzy wasn't as fast as he thought he would be, but he hit a lot harder. So kudos to him for kind of sorting that out. Uh, the this a there was an interesting little um, a wrinkle that this fight made manifest that had existed beforehand, but had somewhat kind of faded from the consciousness. I think uh, mine too. Uh, Israel is very very difficult to take down. This is not. This is also not unique to Adesanya. I, I want to make this clear. I'm not necessarily bagging on him about this. Fence wrestling has become such an important part of how the of the MMA meta experience that everybody, you know, most people defensively want to be on the fence. It gives you a barrier. 
you know, it lets you kind of dig and pummel, it lets you wall walk if you do get taken down. There's, you know, the reasons why you want to be there are fairly well established. And it, it's a good place to be for the most part, unless you're dealing with someone, you know, like a Khabib. Or uh, Islam Makashev, who we'll get to in a bit. Good grief, that man. Uh, you want to be there, because it helps you defend. The flip side of this is, you know, everyone kind of has started thinking primarily about wrestling and takedowns in MMA as it pertains to the fence. And that's it. I think that's mostly a byproduct of uh, in repeated iterations winding up there. What was cut, and Jan had no success trying to take Adesanya down against the fence. Uh, just like I think like straight up none. He might have got one that didn't really amount to much. Once he started timing his takedowns in open space, that's a very, very different story. Uh, he got Adesanya down and was able to control him for rounds four and five. Uh, the the 249-45 scorecards come from a 10-8 for Blahovich in the fourth. Uh, sorry, the fifth. Where I can see the argument Dana White got all pissy about 10-8s and like, I don't know, 10-8s are out of control these days. It used to be you, had to, you have to almost kill a man <laughs> to get a 10-8. And even then, if they landed a good punch or two, they wouldn't give you the 10-8. Was, uh, Dana. Um, I will potentially acknowledge that there, I'm not sure I agree with the 10-8s for Blahovich. That said, the language is just if you win the round by a wide enough margin. Um, and I think you can argue that in the fifth in particular, especially the way it ended, with Blahovich in full mount, teeing off, that he won by a wide enough margin to warrant it. I didn't go that way, but I don't think it's an indefensible position to adopt. Uh, so, anyway, yeah, there's that. Uh, but the takedowns in the middle of the cage, in the middle of open, in open space, that's a very, very different game, and... Uh, this is going to speak to something. I, again, this is not a knock on Adesanya to say that his takedown defense against the fence is great in open space. It's a little bit dubious. Guys, he is not alone in that. That is a very, very significant trend at the moment. There's a lot of people. Look at any shot these days. Uh, anybody who tr is trying to get takedowns. As soon as someone is engaged upon if there's if there's real contact made if your hands get around something be that on a double or a body lock or a single leg or whatever as soon as that contact is made the person trying to defend will actually move backwards as quickly as possible towards the fence so they have a, again the barrier to use to their benefit so this is and that's what, that's kind of why fence wrestling is so important, be that offensively or defensively, you know, both. It's 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 just what everyone does, and for good reason. It does kind of neglect the skill set about how you deal with those in open space, though. And this is one of the interesting things about MMA. It is so varied. There's so much material, you know. One of the great things about boxing, for example, and I've talked about this a little bit in the past, everything is so refined. So refined. Every little thing matters. The way you, your stance matters. I mean, it matters in MMA, but it really matters in boxing. You know, your glove position, what defensive shell you, uh, you adopt. 
uh, all of it in boxing just matters so much more because you're dealing with such limited options. That refines everything down uh, to the purest single point. And there's still, which is not to say that there's no variety in boxing. There is a, there is a variety in boxing. It's a variety of smaller degrees. Those degrees just have larger, uh, they, they manifest larger because you're, you might only be changing a little bit, but because what the, uh, you know, changing a small number, if you're dealing with a small subset, matters more. The, it, it might only be one or two things in a boxing fight that change, but as a percentage of the total available tools, it's, a, it's much larger. MMA has so much, is almost the opposite. There's so much you can do in MMA. There's so much. There's anything on the fence. There's anything in the clinch. There's front clinch, back clinch. How do you want to, mat returns. If you're on the mat, do you want to use a passing game? Do you want to use control? Are you going to prioritize inflicting damage? Are you going to prioritize passing? Are you going to prioritize submission attempts? Which position do you like? Do you like being on, do you like being on top in half guard? Do you like being in side control? Do you prefer to use, you know, some kind of collegiate ride position? If you're using a ride position, do you like one? Do you like a hook in? Do you like a hook out? To say nothing of all the variability on the feet, do you prefer punching or kicking? Do you like short range, middle range, close, uh, long range? When you kick, do you kick low, middle, middle or high? Which stance do you fight out of? The variables are. MMA is not infinite in possibility, but it is like exponentially large. And no human can do all of it. it. It's just not possible. There's too many variables. There's too much. There just is. So even the very best, and make no mistake about this when it comes to Adesanya, he is still one of the very best fighters in the world. You can't do everything. I mean, look at Jan. Blahovich is... Uh, I want to talk about him in a little bit more specifics in a minute or two. But Blahovich has plenty of ways to attack him. You know, his patience is a bit of a liability. That's how, Ti again, Tiago Santos beat him. But I know Santos lost on this card. I still kind of think Santos would beat Blahovich, Not because Blahovich is bad. He's, because he is very, very clearly not. I think it's just kind of how those two in particular line up. There's just stuff that Blahovich does that opens up what Santos does, and in ways that aren't necessarily true for other fighters. I mean, that said, you know, Santos coming off of those knee injuries is still, eh, still a little iffy. Uh, but point being, you know, Blahovich doesn't do it all. Uh, Blahovich has been out-wrestled. In fact, and if you get him down, I mean, it's not that his, his grappling is not bad, in the, but again, grappling's a very large term, but he's not good off his back. I mean, at all. He was comprehensively out-wrestled. I mean, Gustafson took him down fairly easily and just kind of worked him over from there. Now, he's harder to take down now than he was then, but that's still a very viable avenue uh, to attack him from. There's just, believe it or not, at 205, there's not a lot of great wrestlers in the UFC right now. Glover's got decent wrestling, and that's presumably the next fight for Bohovich. But, you look at... I'm going to bring up the rankings for just a second, because... I want to confirm that what I just said is accurate. I'm I'm 90% sure, but I'm going off the top of my head, and I'd rather not be a complete jerk and be wrong. So let's take a look here. 
light heavyweight. So at the moment, yeah. Real, not just yeah, but really yeah. Look at this. So our light heavyweight ranking, these are not updated post this event, but we have champion Blahovich, Glover Teixeira, Tiago Santos, Dominic Reyes, Alexander Rakic, Yuri Prochotska, Anthony Smith, Magomed Ankalaev, Vulcan Uzdemir, Nikita Krylov, and Johnny Walker. That's your champion in top 10. None of those guys are good wrestlers. Some of them, I want to be very, very clear about this. When I say good, I mean like, uh, I I hate to reference this guy because I kind of bagged on him at times, but y you'll get what I mean. None of those guys are like Ryan Bader, right? None of those guys are like Ryan Bader wrestler type wrestlers, you know? Uh, I mean, none of them. Teixeira can get you down, but Teixeira's... Uh, his game opens up more uh, with what he does on the ground in terms of his positional jujitsu rather than his kind of wrestling dominance into smothering, you know, into a static position where he can just pound the crap out of you. You know, Dominic Reyes, who knows if he's even going to bounce back from his last couple of fights. Uh, Rakic, who beat Santos, I mean, Tigo Santos, not. Rakic, who beat Santos, not a wrestler. He, again, he can a little bit if he needs to, but not his preferred methodology. Yuri Prochotska is just a wild man. Anthony Smith, not a rest, uh, doesn't use a lot of wrestling. Magomed Ankalaev could. He chooses not to, but I think if that... Uh, he's probably the closest we've got right now. If he chooses to use it, his ground and pound is brutal. You haven't seen a tremendous amount of it in the UFC, but if you look up his rise through the ranks, yeah, he would take you down and beat the crap out of you. Uh, yeah, there's just not... When the UFC cleaned out 205, the guy, a lot of the guys they got rid of were wrestlers. They made their preferences very, very clear about who they want in their, in their sport, and it's not people who can wrestle. Uh, they'd rather have crappy strikers. Not to say anyone at the top of the division is crappy, but here's maybe a better example. Your fight of the night for this event was Kent, uh, Kennedy and Chukwu and Carlos Ulberg, which was nothing but a sloppy kind of brawl for a round and a half. That's the kind of fighter the UFC would rather have than someone like Phil Davis or Ryan Bader. Whether you agree with that, whether you think that is the way they should go or not, when I say whether you, whether you agree with it or not, whether you think that that is servicing your interest as a fan or not, that is kind of their, that is what they prefer. So at the moment, light heavyweight is fairly devoid of high-end wrestlers. They're just not there. I mean, if you go all the way through the rest of the top 15, just very briefly, uh, Misha Serkinov, 11, Jimmy Crute, 12, Ryan Spann, 13, Paul Craig, 14, and Jamal Hill, 15. Yeah, none of them. I'm sure they, let me be very clear, I'm sure they train wrestling. They'd be stupid not to. And none of those people strike me as stupid. None of them strike me as stupid. I'm sure their preparation is legitimate. But none of them have that wrestling, a strong wrestling game, apart from maybe on Kalaev. And again, maybe Teixeira. Uh, yeah. So, it's, while you can't out-wrestle Blahovich, it's been, it has happened. I don't know too any many people in that group that are going to be well-positioned to do so. Just because they're not, the UFC doesn't seem to want those kinds of fighters. Uh, I mean, it's crazy. You drop down a couple of weight classes. You have Kamaru Usman. You, you have welterweight filled, not filled filled, but filled with good wrestlers. 
You have Lightweight, where they're still acknowledging Khabib as champion. And he was, you know, he's a, a straight wrestler, essentially. You have, yeah, there's a lot of great wrestlers at, uh, a lot of great wrestlers at Lightweight. I mean, even guys who don't use it in the same way, you know. Uh, Poirier is a surprisingly good wrestler. He'd rather punch you out, but he's got good wrestling. Michael Chandler has very good wrestling. Any fight of his that gets out of the first round, you'll see him start wrestling real quick. Uh, RDA is a, you know, uh, not not an American, you know, collegiate-based wrestler, but he's a good wrestler. Daryush is a good wrestler. Kevin Lee, uh, Makashev, who's going to shoot up the rank, you should shoot up the rankings after his performance. Yeah, there's a lot of good wrestlers there. For some reason, 205, nope, UFC does not want them. Just does not have any interest in them. Uh, it's an odd thing. So, and my point there is not to bag on Blahovich. It's to point out that even your champion, or, you know, take Adesanya, another great champion, not, there's stuff there that they're not good at, that because no one can have everything. There's just too much. Um, so, uh, after the fight, I think Adesanya said he was going back to middleweight, which he plans to continue to rule. Uh, while there might be a few avenues that this performance might have opened up for a few guys at middleweight to pursue, I don't know that anyone will have the same success that Blahovich did. There's a couple of blows that Adesanya landed on Blahovich that I'm pretty sure would either uh, completely sleep or badly, badly hurt people at middleweight. And the size disparity is a real thing. Adesanya weighed 200 pounds for this fight. Uh, that was what he weighed on the scale. You know, Blahovich, when he walked into the cage, was probably 220s, if not 230. So, uh, the si- which is not to, at all to say that Blahovich only won because he was the bigger man. That's not the only reason he won. We're also, I'm also not going to pretend it wasn't a contributing factor. So, Adesanya... Uh, yeah, first loss in MMA seemed to take it fairly well. He wasn't, you know, he, uh, this seemed to be a bit of a, you know, he was playing with house money, I think might be the right way to put this. He's undefeated on, you know, one of the bigger stars they have, a guy who's kind of captivated portions of their fan base. He's beaten all the top, he's beaten not every top middleweight, but most of them. To the point where when he said, sure, let me go take a shot at it, no one was getting screwed over here. I mean, your next contender is realistically Robert Whitaker, and I think he and Costa have a fight lined up. And he knocked both of those guys out in the second round. You know, you're not really, you're not really taking a guy, you're not, there's no one who's on like a four fight, there's no Tony Ferguson here, right? Or Max Holloway. You know, that was one of the things about featherweight. You know, uh, Connor wins the belt. Immediately jumps up and everyone correctly goes, dude, Max Holloway's won like five fights in a row over increasing levels of opposition. He's getting screwed here a little bit. And he did. He got screwed over there. He got screwed over by that. Tony the same way. You know, he should have been fighting for the belt, but I, yeah, uh, his situation's fairly well documented. (laughs) There was nobody at middleweight that was getting the shaft. It was just... So he was kind of playing with house money in that respect. Took a shot. Lost. Uh, he didn't take a ton of damage. You know, and 
While his stock will take a little bit of a hit, sure, pretty much everyone's does after a loss, uh, it's not going to be a huge... It, I don't think this is going to be some catastrophic setback for him. So he... You know, a loss never feels good, but he's... His world didn't... He, uh, he, his world did not shatter here, you know? Uh, and as for Blahovic, uh, one of the highest profile wins of his career, as far as that goes. Uh, up next for him will probably be Glover Teixeira. <laughs> you know, uh, needs to be said about Blahovic. Uh, this guy started his UFC career two and four. There's a, there was a period of time after after his sixth UFC fight, he was one and four in his last five with two separate two-fight losing streaks. I mean... That guy just kind of kept on grinding. He got some wins that were necessary. He had some, I mean, he had some dog performances along the way. Nobody bats a thousand. But he kept on going. And kudos to him, he climbed to the mountaintop. Um, he... He said something, uh, Blahovic said one other thing that was kind of interesting in the post-fight. He said, yeah, I'm the I'm the real light heavyweight champion. Was that ever in dispute? Is there anyone who was doubting the legitimacy of his title, of his championship? I mean, look, sure, John Jones cast a big shadow over the division. Not going to pretend that he doesn't. But he's not there anymore. Blahovic won the title by beating another top contender for the vacant belt. He's the real champion, end of story. I mean... This was not a situation like we're going to get to in a bit with Aljamain Sterling and Peter Yan. Uh, I mean, look, would John beat Jan, Would John Jones beat Jan Blahovich? Uh, I tend to think yes, but I'm th- that's not a given. But so what? John is not part of the light heavyweight division at the moment. Uh, you know, there's a very this kind there was kind of a famous uh, quote from Jack Johnson about a situation similar. Jack Johnson, for those... I'll be very brief here, I promise. For those of you who don't know, was the first uh, black heavyweight champion of the world in boxing. He took it off of a gentleman named Tommy Burns, who I believe beat some other kind of interim guy, whose name I forget. Um, but... That, but uh, that whole thing came about because the former champion before that, so I think we're just one or two removed here, was a gentleman by the name of Jim Jeffries, who was a who was un, I believe undefeated, if not very close to it, was the heavyweight champion of the world, and retired with the belt. He so he vacated, he retired, he went to go become an alfalfa farmer, I think. Uh, and Johnson, so I mean, you, then you had a couple of kind of transitional champions. I don't mean that unkindly. And so, again, someone whose name I can't remember, and then Tommy Burns, and then Johnson beats Tommy Burns. And Johnson was a controversial figure, partially because he was black, and this was the 1920s in the United States, partially because he was a very flamboyant figure. Um, and I don't mean that in the like euphemistic way. I mean, he was a fairly big character. And there were a lot of people who, dissatisfied with his being champion, said, nah, Jim Jeffries is the real champion. Uh, and Johnson's reply to this line of logic was just, you know, when a mayor retires, he's no longer the mayor. Someone else gets elected. 
You don't go to the ex-mayor's house asking him to make policy. He's the ex-mayor. I you know, Jeffries was the champion. He's not anymore. I am. Which is entirely correct. I mean, they Tex Rickard, a famous promoter, kind of bought, uh, essentially bribed Jeffries to come out of retirement and fight Johnson for the belt, and Johnson knocked him out anyway. Uh, that was... But uh, the line of logic there stands in that respect. If the champion retires and the belt goes up, whoever wins the belt is the champion. That's that's not really... A, you know, when Tyson Fury vacated the belts in boxing recently, he you know, he could still claim the lineal title, but he was not... But no one thought of him as, you know, he's the real WBC heavyweight champion of the world or whatever. No, it was... It's about Deontay Wilder one, or you pick one of the others that uh, Joshua won or Klitschko won back. Or you, however, I, I forget this. I forget the specific chronology, so forgive me there. But either way, you know, you might say that you think Tyson Fury would win those fights if they were to be made, but he was, but he wasn't, you know, the champion at that particular point in time. He left his belts. John left that belt. Jan's the real champion. Anyone pretending otherwise is being disingenuous to the man. So, yeah, it, as far as that goes. So, Blahovich and Teixeira, again, next most likely. Uh, it would be entirely fitting for Blahovich to finally have earned a degree of the respect he is due and then lose that fight to Glover Teixeira. <laughs> it, would just, it would just be one of those very, very MMA things. Uh... It would just be a very, very MMA thing as far as that goes. <laughs> as for Adesanya, again, going back to middleweight. Uh, probably Robert Whitaker next again. Yeah, I think Whitaker's set to fight Costa. If that's still on, uh, then the winner of that, especially if it's Whitaker, will get another. I mean, if Whitaker wins that fight, he'll have earned another shot at the belt. I mean, he'll have beaten... What, Darren Till, Jared Cannonier, and then Paulo Costa in his last three fights? Yeah. Look, I, I know Izzy smoked him the first time. Fine. But you you do that to get a, to get back to it. Uh, yeah. He's earned that shot. So, he will have earned that shot if that happens. Uh, yeah, that, that's kind of where that is. So, it wasn't a great fight. Uh... Not that parts of it were uninteresting, but it was very kind of low activity. Um, somewhat deliberately from both men in that particular respect. Alright. Um, is there anything else I wanted to say about that fight? No, I don't think so. Okay, moving on. Co-main event. Amanda Nunes defeats Megan Anderson via triangle armbar. I think like a re technically a reverse triangle armbar because she had a reverse triangle on uh, rather than a traditional triangle. <laughs> 203 of the first. There's nothing to say here, almost. I mean, they came out very quickly. Nunes landed a punch, and Megan Anderson had the same reaction that pretty much everyone has the first time they get hit by Amanda Nunes. They go, whoa. Like, their eyes get big and just very, very clearly like, oh, crap. Uh, I mean... I think I think it was Misha Tate who, when asked about this, said Amanda Nunes hits as hard as men do. Uh, Amanda Nunes is just a ridiculous power puncher. She clipped Anderson. Anderson 
Didn't really have a whole lot after that. Hit her a few more times. Pounded her on the mat. Got the back. Got the reverse triangle. Switched it to an armbar. Uh, yeah. What, I mean, what is there to say? Nunez is... There is no 145-pound division. Let's start there. There just isn't. There is not a division. It's a belt. It was created for Cyborg, as Jeff Harris is fond of saying. It was created by created for Cyborg. Wasn't actually a division. Nunez goes up, takes it from Cyborg, and it just exists kind of to... So that Amanda Nunez can have two belts. There's no reason for them to have that. They don't have a division. They don't even really have... That, I don't know. Look, that's just, that is kind of what it is at this point in time. But, yeah, Nunez is... Yeah, she, I mean, she's a beast. She's going to lose eventually. Everyone does. But the woman is just significantly ahead of her opposition in more or less every way. I mean, what does it say that still probably the only competitive fight you can make for her would be another, would be a third fight between her and Valentina Shevchenko at bantamweight. I mean, (laughs) uh, and, and, and to be quite honest, at this point, I look, I scored their second fight for Shevchenko. I stand by that scorecard too, for the record. But if they had a rematch, whew, I might pick Nunes this time. And I, I think very I think very highly of Shevchenko and her abilities, but I don't know. Just where they are right now. I Nunes is simply she's just outclassed the division. And here's the truly like bizarre slash sad thing. Who stepped up? Hmm? Everyone's kind of fond of repeating this point. When there's a dominant champion, everyone else has to raise their game. Uh, Who's raising their game to challenge Amanda Nunes? Uh, You might get Juliana Pena next for Nunes if she goes back to bantamweight. That's... uh, I think I saw that... Because Pena was supposed to fight Holly Holm. I think I saw that that fight was off. And if true, then sure, Pena can get smashed. Because she probably will. I mean, Nunes has just, no one has risen to that particular challenge. Now, eventually, some combination of someone rising and her declining will make that happen. But it's really just, uh, it's kind of an indictment on the division, you know? Here's another way to look at this when it comes to Nunes. Uh... Amanda Nunes has not lost in, uh, when was her, when was her last loss? I think it was the, uh, Zingano fight, right? So 2014. Oh, here, here was the thing that I saw. Okay, I, I remember this, and I think this was for, uh, I think Aaron Bronstetter put out the math. But Amanda Nunez's current unbeaten streak, so if we count her, if we start counting at her win over Shayna Baszler in Mar- March 21st of 2015 through March 6th, 2021. I want to make sure I have the numbers right here, so give me just a second. Uh, crap, wrong button. 
Uh, yeah, okay, so if we count from that win to yesterday and her win, and I'm recording this Sunday, uh, her winning streak has gone for 2,178 days. By contrast, Ronda Rousey's entire fight career from her debut to her last fight and then retirement was 2,105 days. Nunez's current winning streak is longer than Ronda Rousey's entire MMA career. Think about that for just a second. It is an absolutely insane level of dominance. Uh, and no one's, st- again, who's risen to that particular challenge? Who was the last person that gave her a real fight? Uh, okay, so if we discount Shev, so apart from the Shevchenko fight, let me just read through this, just go through this uh, winning streak of hers. TKO Shayna Baszler, submits Sarah McMahon, beats Shevchenko the first time, taps out Misha Tate to win the belt, TKO's Ronda, split with Valentina, TKO's Raquel Pennington, knocks out Cyborg, TKO's Holly Holm, clearly decisions Jermaine Durandamy, clearly beats the crap out of Felicia Spencer, and now submits Megan Anderson. So there's two real fights in that whole time, both of them against Shevchenko, both of which she won. I mean, Durandamy had a couple of moments when she was able to land a strike or two, but she couldn't stop the takedown to save her life. And Felicia Spencer had just nothing for that whole fight. I mean, the the scores on that card were wide and should have been wider. Uh, that's that's just an absurd level of dominance. Uh, I, I got nothing. Uh, I don't know who she fights next. I It doesn't really matter. She's going to lose eventually. We're all going to be shocked when she does. But until we are actually shocked by the reality of it, uh, yeah. She's, she's the best. She's the best female MMA fighter ever. And she is one of the very best fighters in the world, regardless of gender. All right, moving on. This fight. <laughs> this fight. The only title to change hands. Aljamain Sterling defeats Peter Yan via disqualification and illegal knee strike, 429 of the fourth. I wanted... I was so mad about this. I could still wind myself up about it if I wanted to. I'm going to try to be more objective. Before I get to the finish, I want to talk about the fight. Because this fight was awesome. (laughs) I I really want to stress that point. This was awesome. Aljamain Sterling came at Peter Young like he was shot out of a cannon. Uh, Constant pressure, constant, you know, uh, some long-range strikes, some good body work from Sterling throughout. Constantly going for the takedown. Just in his face, the whole, uh, every opportunity he had, he was in Peter Yan's face. And Peter Yan not only weathered that storm, did so very, very well. I actually gave Yan the first round, as did two of the judges. He stopped. By the end, by the end of this fight, Aljamain Sterling was like one for 16 in takedown attempts. He got one in the second that didn't really amount to... M- I think it was in the second. I'm going to have to double-check that now. Uh, because I- I'm 90% sure. Uh, 
Um, do do. Okay, no, sorry. Aljamain Sterling was one of seventeen. <laughs> one of seventeen. <laughs> and it came. Show me per round, please. Where's my takedown? Hang on, that's right. Uh, hang on, maybe it'll be here. Um, okay, no, it was in the first. He got one in the first. He was one of three in the first, and it meant it meant nothing. Jan bounced up almost immediately. Uh, the rest of the rounds, he was 0 for 5 in the second. He still won the second round, I thought. 0 for 5 in the third and 0 for 4 in the fourth. By contrast, Peter Jan was 7 for 7 in takedowns. He got one in the... Uh, Peter got two in the first, one in the second, three in the third, and one in the fourth. Peter Jan's takedown game, especially his trips... Really underappreciated. That man can put you down if he wants to. <laughs> he is really good about getting people down. I mean, he did it to Aldo, and Aldo is a beast to take down. Even at his age. You know, even at the advanced state of Aldo's career, he's still a giant pain in the butt to get down. Jan got him down, man. Not every time he wanted to, but a lot. Uh, so, he, again, he came shot out of a cannon. Unfortunately for Sterling... Well, he won the second, it was a little bit, it was kind of a barely won it, you know, like, I, there's no, there's no controversy around him winning the second round, but it wasn't a big win, it was more of a, okay, yeah, I think he won that one, and everyone just kind of, alright, he won, we think he won that one. He set a pace he could not sustain, he was gassing in the third, and he was dead tired in the fourth. In fact, that's really what Oh, God. So, and before I get to the finish, so Sterling Sterling really struggled on offense here. He threw a lot. Um, so, if we look at the numbers, in the first round, he landed 27 of 74 strikes. That's a very high pace, especially when you factor in the, uh, a bunch of the clinches and his takedown attempts. That's a lot of effort. By contrast, Peter Jan scored a knockdown, which is what won him the round for me, and was 14 of 21. Uh, that's significant strikes, not total strikes. Round two, Sterling was 17 of 36, 0 for 5 on takedowns. And if we go, if those go from significant to total strikes, it was 24 of 46. By contrast, Jan, 10 of 16 and 24 of 31, significant to total, and 1 for 1 on takedowns. But I, th I thought Sterling's control meant a lot more in that round than it did in the previous rounds. And again, he outstruck him, if we're talking significant, by uh, enough of a margin. Again, enough to kind of edge it out. Round three goes pretty big for Jan. Uh, again, three takedowns. He beat the crap out of... Like, he was taking Sterling down, kicking his legs. Anytime he could get to a ride position, landing punches. There were a lot of times when Sterling would kind of shoot and just fall to his knees. And then just stay down there in the turtle, and Jan was just kind of standing over him, holding his head. Uh, which played directly into the finish. But, again, if we look numerically, for significant strikes, Jan was 30 of 53, Sterling 29 of 58, and then for total, Jan 32 of 56 to 34 of 65 for Sterling. And Jan, in that round in particular, if we're talking about quality, not just quantity, he landed the much better strikes. Then round four... Now, after three rounds, uh, 
this because of the way this ended in the fourth, there was a question about how things were being scored through three. One judge was 29-28, Jan. One judge was 29-28, Sterling. The other two, 29-28, Jan. Uh, I suppose, again, I'm not... I disagree with giving Sterling the first, but I don't think it's the worst call. Round four was going very, very badly for <laughs> Aljamain Sterling. A uh, lot of... Jan just landing combinations, stopping all of his takedowns battering him. Uh, if we look by target, I mean, Jan is, does a lot more headhunting uh, than a lot of other, than a lot of other people, but he's, he's pretty good about mixing it up. He was 55 to the head percentages, 55% to the head, 24 to the body, 19 to the leg. But that's not the worst variation in the world. And was just laying into Sterling. Sterling kept, again, going for these takedowns, winding up on his knees, and just kind of hanging out there while holding on to something. Sterl, uh, Jan, standing over him, uh, tries to land a couple of punches, but he, he can't really find an angle with the guy with Sterling down the way he was. And he throws an illegal knee to the head of Aljamain Sterling. Aljamain Sterling cannot continue. And this is re this results in a disqualification. Man, I, I really want to stress this. The fight up until that point was so good. Uh, Peter Yan is the best bantamweight in the world. I'm I, that is a hill right now that I will die on. Not saying he can't lose, but he absorbed and overcame the franticness of Aljamain Sterling and not only beat him in one of the two rounds where Sterling was at his optimal performance, uh, but was, but really, really muted everything Sterling wanted to do. I mean, again, Sterling, one takedown in 17 attempts. I mean, that's a terrible number. <laughs> that's a terrible number. But uh, but he kept trying. He tried. He just Sterling could not find any real sustained success. Whereas Jan just keeps getting stronger as the fight goes on. It's kind of crazy. Uh, his he had some. He has very good sweeps. He had a couple of really nice ones onto Sterling here. Uh, look, Jan can do everything. There's not really an area, I mean, maybe if we went to pure jiu-jitsu, he'd be behind. But he can fight everywhere when he's in that cage, man. Uh, he's a... Hey! <sighs> Sorry, I had to yell at my dog. He's a mean fighter when he needs to be. Uh, he's, he's just, I think he's the best bantamweight in the world. Unfortunately, he landed an illegal knee here. A very illegal knee. There is no confusion about this. Aljamain Sterling had a knee on the ground. There was a knee fully on the ground. <laughs> Means you're downed. Uh, this wasn't even a situation where Sterling was kind of, you know, you used to see this where someone would be on the fence and they'd kind of put the hand up, you know, pick the hand up, put it down, pick the hand up, put it down. This wasn't that. This was Sterling in open space, middle of the cage, down on one knee, uh, and then Jan just knees him in the head. 
I don't get it. I don't know if it was just a mistake on his part. I don't know if there was some confusion about the rules as far as this goes. Uh, I don't know if there was a language barrier issue. When Sterling was down on one knee, the referee, Mark Smith, said he's down. said very clearly he's down. Now, I don't know if Peter Jan just doesn't speak enough English to understand that, which might be the case. And I don't know who's... If that is the big issue here, that Jan doesn't know enough English to understand the referee, I don't know whose fault this is. Is that on Jan for not understanding the language of the official? Is that on the official as a state representative sanctioning this for not knowing enough... And we're not talking about a very obscure language here, we're talking Russian. Is it on the referee for not knowing... You try to learn a few words to people in you know, other languages. I mean, not everyone is, you know, fully bilingual. I mean, uh, Mario Yamasaki is, like, mostly fluent in Portuguese, I think. Uh, Mark Beltran speaks Spanish. A lot of... I mean, if you look at boxing, a lot of refs have learned enough Spanish to speak to Spanish-speaking fighters so that they can understand. Uh... This, that might be a factor here. I don't know. Apparently, Jan's, Jan asked his corner if he was if he could kick him. And apparently, uh, Khabib, who was there, told Daniel Cormier, no, Jan's corner told him it was okay to kick. I don't know if there, if his corner meant kick him in the, you knee him in the chest, which would be legal. Or his corner thought that uh, because of the way Sterling was situated, it would be... Le- I don't know. I don't know... I really don't know. <laughs> I just hate this so much. Uh, Alright, I'm going to say something that might sound very, very mean to Aljamain Sterling. And, you know what, no, no, no. Let, let, me, let me address a couple of things before I talk about Sterling in particular. Let me, let me address, because, as always with circumstances like this, you get these. You get a couple of people. You get the two extremes in thought. You get the morons who go, "How dare he exaggerate that? He was faking it. He was, you know, playing it up for the ref. He wanted out of that fight." And once he kind of figured he could get the DQ, when he just, you know, he he wanted out and he could get the belt, and you know, he's uh, essentially falsified his way into the title through acting rather than athletic ability. I don't know how badly Aljamain Sterling was hurt. All right, only here's the reality: he's the only person who knows how badly he was hurt by that knee. I'll tell you this though: looked pretty bad. <laughs> looked really bad to me. And if he he was so, part of this is there's no dispute about the foul. There's just a bunch of people going he he exaggerated it. Well. Here's a real question for you, and I want you to think about this very, very carefully before you give an off-the-cuff response. Why wouldn't he? And your immediate response, if you're opposed to him, if you if you believe that he faked every bit of this, and you're opposed to that, your response to that is almost certainly so, could be distilled down to something like, it's dishonorable. That's not a real objection. Not in this context. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Every single bit 
of the incentive structure in the sport told him and tells every fighter to to fake that right anyone in that same position anyone the incentive structure is such that they should you can say that that's a crappy thing to do and i'm not arguing with you but think about if you're that fighter for just a second your goal is to win first foremost last always win you don't get paid enough i'm not here to re- completely relitigate the fighter pay issue except to just say they don't get paid enough they know they don't get paid enough one of the very few ways you can actually contractually guarantee bigger paydays is with a ufc title so winning is not only the most important thing winning that belt guarantees you a significant jump in pay that you would not otherwise see why wouldn't he do that and i know there's somebody out there going but anthony smith didn't okay he didn't and i'm not anthony smith has to live with that he to be very clear anthony smith is the only person him and his immediate family who have to deal with the consequences of him doing the honorable thing rather than the incentivized thing look what he's done since then i'm not i'm not trying to say that i want an entire generation of fighters that are malingerers in that particular respect i'm not because i don't but since that fight he has gone two and two he scored a pretty significant upset win over alexander gustafson then got TKO'd by Glover Teixeira, then got beat up by Alexander Rakic, and finally got a rebound win over Devin Clark. Now, he headlined all three of those fight nights, but I guarantee you not a one of those paid what he would have made for a rematch with John Jones where Anthony Smith was the champion. Not a one of them. Now, that's money he lost out on. Now, if... If the... If he, if that money and those opportunities afforded via it were not worth whatever he would have lost as a, as a byproduct of his own personal integrity, then, oh, oh, then okay. Like, I, that is admirable in some very real ways. But he behaved counter, he behaved in a very counterintuitive sense to every single bit of financial and, uh, not just financial, but you know your your career in the larger sense of beyond finances. Every bit of incentive structure, as it pertains to that, he went contrary to it. And you can call that admirable, you can call that stupid, and you can make a very very clear case for both of those things to be true. Aljamain Sterling, if Aljamain Sterling faked that, he behaved in a way that he is incentivized to do. More to the point. He was need in the head illegally. I don't I am not going to sit here and blame that man for what happened to him. If Peter Yan doesn't knee him in the head like that, what's he going to do? He's going to have to try and find some other either going to have to try and find some way to fight back and win or find some other way out of the fight that doesn't involve a foul. 
Jan screwed himself, period, when it comes to that. There's no one else to blame. There's no ambiguity. This is not a blown call by the ref. This is not a blown call by a review official when eh, maybe the knee was legal. No. None of that. There was no ambiguity here. <laughs> so, it, it, did Sterling, you know, fake that? I don't know. I tend to think not. But again, if he did, why are you surprised? I, again, I was angry about this. I really was. I don't know. I wasn't angry at Sterling. Wasn't even really. I wasn't even horribly angry at Jan, though he deserves more blame than any, than anyone else. But he's Aljamain Sterling behaved in a way, if he exaggerated that, that he is incentivized at every level to do. What's the serious question? What's the downside? So not only did I ask you know why why wouldn't he? Better question. What is the downside? The only thing he has to worry about is whether or not he can live with himself, right? He's going to make more money for his next fight. Straight up, no BS. He will be the champion if that fight is on pay-per-view and his contract is the standard UFC champion's contract. He will get pay-per-view points for it. He's going to make more money for his next fight. He is the current champion. Even if he loses his next fight, he's is forever immortalized as a former UFC bantamweight champion. That's not changing. There's... Uh, there's just not really any reason for... It. And the other argument that people will throw is, well, I've seen him fight back through more. When he was incentivized to do so, maybe. Here... Uh, and... I mean, even in those cases, I'm not even entirely sure you've seen Aljamain Sterling ever be in this kind of a position. You might have seen other fighters fight back from positions like this. But Sterling was getting the crap beat out of him. He was gassed out. Uh, again, he lost, for my money, two of the first three rounds, and he was losing the fourth badly. I mean, badly he was losing that round. That was not going his way at all. And then he gets fouled. Like, he didn't ask for that. He didn't... There was no... Again, there's no duplicity here as far as the nature of the foul. Peter Jan didn't want this... Didn't want that result. He shouldn't have kneed him in the head when he was on the ground. That's the long and the short of it as far as that goes. So, with the... I say all that to say the following. I say that before I say the following so that you understand I'm not trying to bury Aljamain Sterling. He trained his butt off for a championship fight at the highest level against the best guy in the world in that weight class. And he went out there and fought. And he fought his butt off. And maybe it wasn't enough. Under normal circumstances, again, I had him losing. I had him losing badly and worse the, f the longer the fight went on. Third round, he lost con pretty convincingly. Fourth round, he l was losing badly. Fifth round would have been worse, if I had to guess. He went out there, and again, he worked hard, and he tried everything he could. And yeah, I didn't think it was going to be enough. And it certainly wasn't enough to any rational observer of that fight through three rounds. And yes, that means I'm saying one of those judges wasn't a rational observer of the fight, 
That's not new. But he, but I, I'm not, I, I say, so again, I say the following with full acknowledgement of that reality. Unfortunately for Aljamain Sterling, he is now in the worst possible position. He is a paper champion. And I don't throw that term around lightly. He is a champion, not because he was the better fighter. And I think that's fairly clear. Now, they might fight again, and Sterling might make the necessary adjustments to win a sec- to win on the pure merits of the fight in, the, in their rematch. But right now, he is, unfortunately, the champion. He's, this is almost as bad as when Daniel Cormier was you know, retroactively awarded the title after John knocked him out but then failed a drug test. Right, Cormier at least had beaten a few other guys to that point in the division at the top, had defended the belt, I think, once. Uh, It's just unfortunate that he was out there as champion when, you know, the whole world watched John Jones knock him out. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Uh, That's just a, that's an unfortunate thing. And to Daniel, to somewhat defend Daniel Cormier there, none of that was his fault. (laughs) Like, he had no control over that. He, had to, he just had to live with it. In the case of Sterling, uh, and to, again, Cormier's position being slightly different in that he was the defending champion going into that rematch with John. Here you have a guy who wins the belt via DQ. First time in UFC history that's happened. And not just wins it via DQ, wins it via DQ in a fight he was losing badly. Uh... <laughs> That is a bad look. That's just an unfortunate look for anybody. Uh, Him or anybody else. So, I I just wanted to make it very clear. When I call him a paper champion in that respect, it's not because he is a fighter who does not, who, it's not because he's not one of the best bantamweights in the world. He was the number one contender for this fight for good reason. I'm not calling him a shirker. He worked his butt off. I'm not saying he didn't, I'm not saying he came into this fight and kind of lazed his way through it. He worked himself into an exhausted state over about 10 and a half, over about, you know, 11 minutes-ish, trying to win this fight every way he knew how. That's, all of that is commendable to Aljamain Sterling. It's, (laughs) but I am not going to call him... He's a he is the champion. He's got the belt, but I but he's again he's kind of a paper champion in that respect. Until he defends that belt, and preferably defends it against Jan and wins without ambiguity. It sucks, but that's you. I'm not here to I'm not here to you know fluff anyone. You guys don't come here for that. You come here for the truth as I see it. And. And at the moment, that's how I see this stuff with Aljamain Sterling. And it sucks for him, man. That is not... That is an albatross around his neck. And it would be an albatross around the neck of any other fighter in his position. And it sucks. Because it's not his fault. That is not his fault. Not one iota of this was his fault. Uh, Apart... I mean, apart from the fact that he, you know gassed himself out and wound up in an untenable position. 
But everything about the finish, everything about the ruling was out of his control. Everything about the foul, again, so the foul, the decision for it to be a DQ, and the awarding of the title to him under those circumstances. He has zero say over any of those. Jan committed an egregious foul. The referee ruled it should be a disqualification. The UFC decided that because it was that the title can change hands that way. He has zero say over any of those three considerations. That sucks. That sucks for him, and it, it, it sucks to be in that position. But I'm not going to say... So I'm not blaming him. It's just, but I'm not going to say the position... I'm not going to say the situation is something different. It is what it is. And that sucks... But I'm not gonna sh- I'm not gonna pretend that it's something else. Uh, other guys screwed in this fight. Corey Sandhagen, who was gonna fight next for the belt, you have to imagine. Now screwed. He got screwed over <laughs> with this. Uh, yeah. There there's some rumblings that they were looking to make Dillashaw and Sandhagen. That is going any pressure the UFC was exerting on things to go that way is going to increase significantly as a result of this because they'll want to rematch Sterling and Jan, and they should rematch Sterling and Jan immediately. But it sucks for Corey Sandhagen. Yeah, he's got to deal with TJ Dillashaw, who is not an easy task to overcome, to put it lightly. Uh, it's I don't have any better way to say it other than that it sucks. It really sucks all the way around. And it, perhaps it sucks doubly more because the fight was awesome. This was every bit the action, the dynamic action fight that we all thought it would be at the highest level. This was this was a great fight. Ugh. Thrown away. Just, ugh. I'm just sad about it, man. Just left the worst possible taste in my mouth. So, rematch up next for that for those two, presumably. Uh, yeah, we'll just have to see what happens. Uh, on to something more laudable, I suppose. Islam Makhachev, oh boy. Beat Drew Dober via arm triangle, 137 of the third. Uh, if you had forgotten that Islam Makhachev was a darn good fighter, this was a great reminder. Makashev is the real deal. Um, I'm not going to call him the next Khabib. There similarity. There are very obvious similarities. They were they both trained under Abdulmanap from a very young age. Uh, this so there are ver- there are similarities. There are also differences. Uh, and I think that needs to be acknowledged. I'm not going to call him that. I'm, he's a great enough fighter in his own right. He doesn't need a comparison. Uh. Dober had bits and pieces of success, but as soon as he got taken down, man, the different, the skill difference on the ground was obvious. The finish in, I mean, there were some beautiful inside foot sweeps from Makashev. He got a body lock against the fence in the first round. Might have been the second. He had just a single leg in the first. In the second, tries the single leg, Dober defends, they bounce into the fence, he switches to the body lock. His left leg goes inside of Dober's right, sweeps it out like it's nothing, drops him to the mat. Uh, Makashev's grappling is superb. Like, absolute top-notch, all kinds of different stuff. Single, you know, Double leg, single leg, t- 
trip against the fence, upper body trips, lower body, upper body throws, lower body trips, all of it. The finish was remarkable. You don't see this very often, especially from guys that know what they're doing. But um, Makashev's in half guard. And I'm going to talk about this from his perspective if you want to visualize. If you, if you want to just find a clip of the finish, uh, the entire sequence, that'll help. But if, if I'm talking like we're Makashev, he's on top and he's straddling Dober's right leg. So he's on the left side, his left side. Dober's kind of sitting up looking for a Kimura grip on the left arm. He gets his arm free. And because of the position of Dober's body, when he flattens him back out, his he's got an arm triangle set up on the right on our right side. The problem is that you're in half guard on the wrong side. This is normally a somewhat safe position. Well, not for Drew Dober in this case. Makashev gets the arm triangle uh, grip locked and gets his head in the right position. Gets up on his toes and between his squeeze with his back, you saw every muscle in that man's back pop out as he's squeezing. And driving everything he has with his shoulder forward into the neck with his... Can look at this. He gets up on his toes and everything is driving forward. And he makes Drew Dober tap out from that position. This wasn't a Sage Northcutt, I don't quite know what I'm doing here thing. This man has a gorilla grip. <laughs> and not just the raw physical strength. Everything about that technically was correct. Now, some of that was Dober not doing a few things. One, he let Makashev get the, the arm triangle position with not just his head, but uh, the way he let him build the frame with his left arm. And then you have to use you have to use your half guard to kind of upset their base. You can't just hold it and then kind of let them elevate like that. You have to do stuff with it. It's not just there just to be there. Now, Drew Dober is not, he's not a grappler by trade, but the man's trained enough to, he, he knows enough about what he's doing. Certainly to wreck someone like you or me. Even just in pure grappling, he would wreck someone like you or me. And the skill difference was so great that Makashev, even from one of the the least ideal position where you can still finish that, finished it. With technique and raw strength. Oof. Um, after the fight, Makashev said he wants to fight Tony Ferguson because Tony never got to fight Khabib and he'd still like to have... Some kind of variation on that fight. Sure. Sign me up. Uh, sign me the heck up for that fight. There's no bad combination of top lightweights. If you look at the top of lightweight, they're still listing Khabib as champion. But if we go down from there, uh, you've got, you know, Poirier, McGregor, Gagey, Chandler, Oliveira, uh, you know, Ferguson potentially in the mix a little bit. Makashev, Hooker's still kind of floating in that space. Like, tell me a bad permutation of those groups of people. You can't do it. You just can't. It's all great. So if that's the fight he wants, sure. But put Tony in a really tough spot. He would need that win bad. He would need that win really badly. But, uh... You know, again, you could put him against anybody. You could put him there, you know, uh, Gaethje would be a great option. Put him in there against Charles Oliveira. Uh, you, there's not, again, there's not a bad grouping here. There is no bad combination of those fights. But Makashev, uh, again, I know Dober's not, he wasn't ranked coming into this, but Makashev is, he's on a long winning streak, man. 
He's only lost one fight in his entire career. It was his second UFC fight. He's won seven in a row. Uh, three of those finishes. He's got some good names on there, too. Uh, I, I mean, again, some of them not so much, but, you know, the last three in particular, Sarukian, Hamo, Davi Hamosh, that Armin Sarukian win has aged very well. And then here, submitting Drew Dober. Dober was on a good run. Give that man a shot at the top. You know, give him a shot at somebody somebody ranked, man, and ranked fairly highly. Uh, anything else is just kind of a waste of everyone's time. Jeez, you got Daryush in the mix, too. I'd kind of forgotten about him. Uh, they they tried to make um, they had tried to make Makashev an RDA. Uh, does not, RDA hasn't fought at lightweight in forever. He's number seven somehow. Has he even fought at light? I don't think he has. He said he wanted to come back to the division, which is fine. I don't object to him cutting back to 155, but no, he beat Paul Felder. That was it. Okay, so he did get one return fight at lightweight. It was a good fight between him and Felder, actually. So, you could maybe try to remake that. I mean, I don't want it. I don't want to see RDA fight another fence wrestler for the rest of his career, but you might have to make a fight like that. It's again, there's no bad combination. And kicking off the main card, uh, Alexander Rakic defeated Thiago Santos for unanimous decision, two twenty-nine, twenty-eight, one thirty, twenty-seven. Really tentative fight from both men. Not a lot of action. Rakic kind of doing just enough to win each... I think I had him 30-27. I might have given Santos the sec the third. Um, right man won. Not a standout performance. Not enough for him to leapfrog to share in terms of saying, I have next. So he might have to fight one more time, or he can just wait for Blahovic and Teixeira to pan out and then fight the winner of that, because he's pretty clearly the next one after, the, after Teixeira. But if you wait that long, somebody could steal your spot. So, uh, tough spot, but you know, not not the most inspiring fight. Uh, but I'm only going to throw so much crap at it because you're dealing with two guys who have documented power and are very capable of ending your night. So Sometimes you know, winning is the most important thing. And this wasn't a great win in terms of excitement, but... It was a good win for Rakic, uh, who is, again, I think he should be next after Glover, all things considered. Anyway, that was your main card. Uh, what could have been, huh? There's an alternate reality where this fight card is banging. Instead, well, it kind of was what it was. As for the prelims, I'll go quickly here. I don't want to be here all day. Dominic Cruz defeated Casey Kenny via split decision. 129-28 for Kenny, 129-28 for Cruz, 130-27 for Cruz. I was 30-27 Cruz. I thought the second round maybe could have gone to Kenny. Uh, these two fought at a fairly high pace all three rounds. And when I say high pace, you know, everybody kind of looks at... This wasn't flurry heavy. There were flurries. But it's much more draining on your body to just kind of constantly be doing stuff than to flurry, stop, flurry, stop, flurry, stop. These two were engaged for the vast majority of this 15 minutes. Uh, yeah, Cruz looked pretty good. Uh, I think the general level of the game is just is just catching up to him at this point. Yeah, between him slowing down a little bit and then... Uh, oh, sorry. Somebody... Uh, backtrack very briefly. 
I'll be quick, I promise. Uh, about Sterling and Yawn. Uh, somebody who listens to the show on Twitter reached out and asked me a question about, do I think... I'm happy to take questions, by the way, just by way of example. Do I think the title should change hands on a disqualification? And I tend to... You don't want to get to a position where a champion is losing a fight and then deliberately disqualifies themselves to retain the belt. You really don't want to be there. I do think there might be an important caveat to be had here. Um, especially if you have... Uh, if enough, if you've had a couple of rounds in the books, if the champion is losing the fight, so if you have a score, if you have a position where these scorecards say that the champion is down and they get themselves disqualified, I do think that in that case, the title should change hands. If you're in a case here, my pre- Here's how I would have preferred this. I, so we have that. I think my brothers, as far as this goes, especially since we're talking about 429 of the fourth, score the fourth round. If the challenger is winning and there's a disqualification. So we have at this point, we have more than half of a round. You score what has happened in the round. If the challenger is winning and the result is a DQ in favor of the challenger, give them the belt. If the challenger is losing and there's a DQ, I tend to think they should vacate it. Rather than give it to the guy who was getting his butt kicked. That's just my kind of that's kind of my personal preference about how this should go. That might create its own set of problems, I don't know. But my hunch would be, if the fighter's winning and the other guy gets himself disqualified, give him the belt. If he's losing and then wins via disqualification, vacate the title, go on from there, rather than... I mean, again, I I just went over how, how Sterling is in this terrible position. Now... He would rather go into the next fight as the champion than not because he'll get more money for it. I kind of went over that. But if we're if if I'm supposed to take my, you know, potentially advocating for a fighter out of it and thinking about it from their perspective, yeah, I'd rather the result here have been a disqualification and the title is vacant because the champion got disqualified while while he was winning the fight. That's kind of how I would rather it happen. How Viable that is from a, you know, a promotional or a legal perspective as far as everything's concerned, I have no idea. I have no idea. But anyway, that's my take on that. Sorry, I, I meant to talk about that briefly and I didn't. So a little bit later, but there's the answer to your question. Uh, I, for, uh, I, for, I don't know your real name. I know your Twitter handle. This is Blackbird on Twitter. Uh, so answer to your question. If, it, if you happen to have any questions... Feel free to ask them via Twitter. Uh, I am at WinfreeMMA. Okay, so Cruz beats Kenny via split decision. I thought it was pretty clear for Cruz. Uh, Cruz called out... <laughs> he brought attention to an executive in Monster Energy that he has issues with. Um, he elaborated on this. The executive in question, I believe, was Hans Molenkamp. Who, if I were being unkind, I would simply call Mole Man. <laughs> 
I'm not going to be unkind. And he elaborated a little bit on this, that Molenkamp had been using his position as an executive at Monster to leverage fighters um, appearing with him on social media or things of that nature. And if you did not comply with his request on his terms, then if you were, especially if you were sponsored by Monster, he would uh, hold up payments of you, he would hold up some of your money, things of that nature. He is... Cruz made this public. A lot of fighters came out and essentially confirmed his version of events. Angela Hill, who is a teammate of Cruz. Cub Swanson, who is not a teammate of Cruz. Uh, I mean, for whatever value you want to give Ali Abdulaziz, he said that he that uh, s- similar circumstances had happened. Again, how... How much good faith you want to give Ali Abdulaziz, as far as that goes, is up to you personally. But Cruz is not just spitting into the wind here. Enough people have said, basically, have come out about their interaction. I mean, there was an old, there was an old, uh, I forget what, there was an old social media post that's been unearthed about Dana White sending this guy to hell. (laughs) Uh, I forget if it was on Instagram or Twitter or something, but one of them just blasting this guy for essentially the similar behavior. Um, so, yeah, there's that. <laughs> I don't know what'll come of all this, but Monster is one of the few sponsors that still exists in the UFC in the modern era, as far as people who will sponsor fighters and then can get their logo on a fight on a fight kit. Um, one of the other things Dana said after the fact that, you know, no one deserves money from a sponsor. It's a privilege. Buddy, your company, the UFC, has carte blanche to say who is allowed on your airtime. I'm not saying that you shouldn't. I'm not. And to be clear, I'm not saying that that's not something the UFC should have. It is their airtime. They're being paid for it slash paying for it. They should have say over who gets to be on their airtime. I'm not objecting to this in some grand philosophical way. The UFC's implementation of this I do have issues with. No, it is not a privilege to get money from a sponsor. You're not, you are owed it if you signed a contract, true. But you're not entitled to sponsorship necessarily. In some, you know, it is owed to you by the universe. But your company deliberately removed this avenue of revenue from fighters, unilaterally. You'd cost a lot of people a lot of money. And you reaped a lot of benefits from people who were sponsoring fighters anyway. I mean, there was the, what was it, like 10 grand? Any company that was going to sponsor a fighter on UFC airtime had to pay the UFC $10,000. I don't know if that was cumulative in the sense that for each fighter that they did, or if it was... Uh, we'll pay you ten grand, and then we have a set number of fighters that will be on your air on your broadcast. But that was a sponsor tax, I think was the way it was referred to. That was public knowledge for years. You've set this system up, and now you're going to try and pretend that fighters, you know, are not are should just be grateful to every single ounce of courtesy that you are legally obliged to give them. No, piss off. That's absolute horse crap. Your company reaps the lion's share of the benefits. You pay fighters less than 20% net of your you know, 
revenue year over year, and you deliberately go out of your way not to to have them avoid labor cons- labor laws that would protect them. And the one of the very few avenues they still have left as individuals is sponsorship deals, and you screw them on that too. And sorry, just I don't I have no time for Dana White's take on this. Just none. All right, we'll go quickly through the rest of these. Kyler Phillips defeated Song Yudong via unanimous decision, 29-28. That's what I had it. Good performance from Phillips. A lot of movement. Uh, landed some good... Song has a chin on him, man, and that's not a joke about him being Chinese. He ate a lot of blows that would have caused some people serious problems like they were nothing. Uh, big win for Phillips. Asker Askarov defeated Joseph Benavidez via unanimous decision, 230-27-130-26. This is just the second three-round loss in Joseph Benavidez's entire UFC career, and I believe just his third three-round loss ever. He lost to Cruz in a three-round fight back in the WEC days. He lost... He's lost title fights, but I think his only other three-round loss was to Sergio Pettis. And then this one. Um, Yeah, Askarov beat him everywhere. In the stand-up, he beat him. When they grappled, he beat him. Uh... Cut him up, hurt him a couple of times, out-wrestled him. Just... The only caveat here is that Askarov missed weight. He weighed 127. Now, he's never had a weight problem before. But it does kind of bear watching, because he he should be next. This this is your number one contender now, guys. Askar Askarov. He should fight the winner of Davison Figueredo and Brandon Moreno. Uh, he should be your next guy up, but you missed weight. Again, just once, pay attention to it, but it can just happen. Uh, solid performance from Askarov. Kai Kara-France defeated Rogerio Bontarin via t- uh, knockout. They have listed here punches, 455 of the first. Bontarin got a takedown fairly quickly, had the back for a long period of time. A couple of near chokes, but Kara-France just kept solid, kept defensively sound, fought the hands, broke it, and then nice finishing sequence. Lands a right over the shoulder, takes an angle, uppercut, another right hand, Bontarin face plants, we're done. Uh, Carol Franz's first finish in the UFC, needed performance from him, all things considered, uh, so good for him. Let's see, uh, Tim Elliott defeated Jordan Espinosa via unanimous decision, 230-27s, 130-25, I thought 30-26 might be more appropriate. Espinosa just couldn't stop the grappling of Elliott. After mentioning this fight a little bit, Kennedy and Zetchiku defeated Carlos Ulberg via knockout, 319 of the second. Sloppy, sloppy fight, but not boring before the finish. Uh, Sean Brady defeated Jake Matthews, arm triangle choke, 328 of the third. Sean Brady's legit, guys. Uh, Matthews is hard to beat, and he's hard to finish. Brady, a little rough on the feet still, but his grappling is top-notch. Uh, especially the finish, if you look it up. He finishes from the correct side, but he has to kind of muscle Matthews away from the fence, and he does it with both strength and technique. Uh, Pay attention to Sean Brady. Amanda Lemos walked all over Livia Hanata Souza, TKO 339 of the first. Just beat the crap out of her. Ursos Medish defeated Alon Cruz via TKO 140 of the first, mauled him from start to finish. A little bit of a late stoppage, even. Uh, Medish just... Beat that man into the ground. 
And kicking everything off, Trevin Jones defeated Mario Bautista via TKO, 47 seconds of the second. Jones continuing his trend of getting beaten up in the first, coming back in the second. So, 15 fights. The event was about eight hours start to finish, I think. Seven and a half at a minimum. Long night. Long night. But to anyone who followed along live in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania, I thank you very much. I know I know we had some of the regulars stop by. It's, uh, it's not as lively over there these days, but I thank you all for coming by. And if you read after the fact, I thank you all for reading that too. So uh, much appreciated for all of your support. Uh, again, it was an event. And I'll try to be quick about the rest of these because we don't need me to be here. All we don't need we don't need to be here forever finishing this stuff up. So let's move on. UFC on ESPN plus 45. Main event: Leon Edwards and Bilal Muhammad. Muhammad stepping in on short notice. Um, Edwards was supposed to fight Kamzat Shemaev. We'll talk about him again in a, a little bit later. He's one of our news pieces. Um, Edwards has been out for a while, man. Again, he got screwed by 2020 as much as anybody professionally. Uh, he really, he's been out for not, uh, over a year. Yeah. Well over a year, actually last fought in July of 2019. So 18 ish months, give or take when it's all said and done. Um, more than that, geez, 20 months. Yeah, something like that. So, closer to two years than 18 months, I think, mathematically. Uh, the layoff's going to be interesting. He had a bad case of COVID. Edwards did. Um, I still tend to favor him, especially over five rounds. Muhammad's a tough guy, but he's not fought five rounds in the UFC, so how he'll hold up over the duration is still a bit of a question mark. Edwards is good about finding just a marginal position where he's slightly better and then controlling you and beating you from there. And that's a tough thing to overcome. So, picking Edwards. Uh, Misha Serkinov will fight Ryan Spann. Um, Spann's coming off a loss to Johnny Walker. He'd been undefeated in the UFC before that. He's a little bit of an awkward guy. Uh, Serkinov at various points we thought might be somebody. He's been kind of up and down for his last little bit, though. He's also got the uh, loss to Johnny Walker. He's coming off a win over Jimmy Crute when he hit him with a Peruvian necktie. Rare finish there. I'm going to pick Crute. I think he'll be able to get Span down and work him over on the ground. It's a heavyweight fight between Ben Rothwell and Felipe Linz. God, why? Just why? Uh, Rothwell lost to Marcin Tabora in October of last year. Linz... Uh, 0-2 in the UFC with losses to Andre Olofsky and Tanner Bozer. I'll pick Rothwell here, but God, who cares? Featherweight fight, Dan Ige and Gavin Tucker. This is a good fight. Uh, Ige coming off of that loss to Calvin Cater that kind of derailed his momentum and earned Cater a historic beating at the hands of Max Holloway. Good God. <laughs> Wonder if Ige didn't get off better there. Uh, Tucker... On a three-fight winning streak. That's a good fight. I'm going to pick Tucker, but uh, don't sleep on Dan Ige. Women's strawweight fight. Angela Hill will fight Ashley Yoder. Pick Hill. I think I did. they rescheduled this after one of Yoder's cornermen tested positive for COVID prior to 
Not 259, but the event before it, I want to say. So, picked Hill then. I'll pick Hill now. Mateus Nikolaou will fight Manel Cape. <coughs> Cop, I'm sorry. I think is how he prefers it pronounced. Uh, Cop had a really uninspired debut, but I was really disappointed by that because I was looking forward to him showing up. Um, Nikolaou back in the UFC. He had a good enough run. He went like 4-1, and one, but he got knocked out by Dustin Ortiz. Then he's back here now after uh, winning a couple of more regional fights. I'll pick Cop, uh, Cop again, but he needs a good performance. Then a middleweight fight between Eric Anders and Darren Stewart. I can't pick Eric Anders at this point. Um, I just can't. Uh, and Darren Stewart is actually a pretty decent fighter. I thought he beat Kevin Holland in his last fight. So, go with Stewart. Let's see. Prelims, Courtney Casey and J.J. Aldrich. Probably J.J. Aldrich there. Um, Ronnie Yaya and Ray Rodriguez. Love me some Ronnie Yaya. Guy who never got his due, you know? Had a couple of long winning streaks. Uh, never quite got his due. Charles um, Charles Jordan will fight Marcelo Rojo. I believe it's Rojo. If he's Brazilian, it's Rojo, so I'm going to assume it's a Spanish name. Uh, I'll pick Jordan there. Jonathan Martinez. Uh, Bantam, wait for this one. Jonathan Martinez and Davey Grant. Um, Grant's had a bit of an up-and-down UFC career, but we had a long layoff at one point. Really long layoff, jeez. Anyway, he's won his last two. Uh, whereas Martinez, winning UFC record, I think he's what four and two. Yeah, four and two. Probably go with Martinez, but that's not a bad fight. Women's strawweight, Jin Yu Fry will fight Gloria DePaula. This is do or die for Fry. And math, uh, I'll pick Fry, but. Mm. She needs this one bad. And then Matthew Semmelsberger versus Jason Witt. I'll pick Witt. But, eh, that's kind of an op. That's a little bit of an iffy one. And then we have potentially two more fights. Uh, Ricardo, ha uh, Ricardo Hamos, excuse me, lost his opponent. He was supposed to fight Zubaira Tuhugov. And then Nazrat Hakparas was supposed to fight... Who was he supposed to fight? Uh, I don't know. to use a different website real fast. <laughs> Who was he supposed to fight? Do -do -do. It's not listed here. Huh. Oh, Don Madge. I wonder if that's been made and the other one hasn't been updated yet. I'll pick Hack Perest over Madge, kind of in the dark, but I'm not sure which... I'm not sure if that's the replacement fight that's been made or if that's the one that fell apart. Um, if that's the actual fight, I'll pick Hack Perest, and I'm okay picking Hack Perest in the dark, too, so... Anyway, that's our current setup, such as it is. A um, couple of decent fights there, but, man, that's another long one. That's another long one, potentially. Anyway... Saturday, I will have coverage in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania because that's what I do.
So I do hope you'll stop by, say hello. I always appreciate you guys and all the support that you give. All right, let's move on. A couple of news pieces here, and then we'll close up shop. Um, the UFC had a couple of more roster cuts this week. The big two, former UFC heavyweight champion Junior Dos Santos and former UFC heavyweight title challenger Alistair Overeem are both gone. Um, for Junior, he'd lost four in a row. He'd been stopped in all of them. <sighs> kind of could see the writing on the wall there. Overeem, not just the loss to Volkov. Overeem was a not cheap. Overeem was costing him like 500 grand a pop. Uh, Andre Olovsky might be next up on the chopping block for them. He's not cheap either. <laughs> but um, it sucks, but this happens to everybody. This is not, uh, again, it, it sucks emotionally, but you can't do anything about it. Saw a random stat about this. In the past, like, 10 years, Junior Dos Santos has been involved in, like, 33% of all UFC heavyweight title fights. That man helped define an era. His run-up to the title and his first title defense, that run in the UFC, one of the best runs you'll ever see at heavyweight. Debuts knocking out Fabricio Verdun with an uppercut. Goes on a tear. He beats some great guys along that way. Some less great, some genuinely great. I mean, I want to look up that run because I was there for every one of these as a fan. Yeah, knocks out Verdum, TKO's Stefan Struh, TKO's Mirko Krokop, TKO's Gilbert Ivel, knocks out Gabriel Gonzaga, decisions Roy Nelson, decisions Shane Carwin, beat the crap out of both of those guys, by the way, knocks out Cain Velasquez, TKO's Frank Mir. You are hard-pressed to find a better run than that over that many fights. I'm not saying you can't do it, I'm saying you're, it's, that is rarefied air, my friends. Even after that, his perseverance needs to be mentioned. Gets the crap beat out of him by Kane. Knocks out Mark Hunt. Gets the crap beat out of him by Kane. Rebounds to beat Stipe via unanimous decision. Loses to Overeem. Beats Rothwell. Gets beaten by Stipe. Wins three fights in a row. Beats Ivanov. Knocks out TKO's tied to Ivasa. TKO's Derek Lewis. Then gets stopped by Nganu. Stopped by Blade. Stopped by Rosenstrike. Stopped by God. I mean, again, he's fallen off pretty hard, but that man's UFC career has been long. He debuted in 2008 when he knocked out Verdum. And it has been, at points, exceptionally successful. Uh, yeah, exceptionally successful. So it sucks emotionally, but... Again, you get finished in four in a row. I can't fault the UFC, man, as far as that goes. And Overeem, kind of the same thing. Um, in the aftermath of this, Junior said he's not retiring. Overeem hinted he might be. Um, the scumbags at Bare Knuckle Fighting said they're trying to recruit both of them. I hope not. Um, we'll have to see where they both land. Wouldn't be shocked to see Overeem land in Bellator. Um, not the most likely thing, but I wouldn't be shocked if he did. Uh, kind of ditto for Junior, but I don't know, man. Junior's... Uh, 
the miles and the the years and miles have added up on that guy. And I hope he gets out before he is damaged more than he is long term. Uh, all right. And last news bit I have here and before we check Twitter, at least. Um, the odd tale of Hamzat Shemaev this week. The surging, uh, one of the breakthrough fighters of 2020, Kamzat Shemaev, posted on Instagram that he was thinking about retiring, that COVID is still kicking his butt, he coughed up some blood, and he's just thinking about maybe hanging, that he was going to kind of hang it up, that he wasn't going to be able to recover from this, his body was telling him we're done. Uh, a few different... Dana White immediately came out and said, no, he's just emotional. We brought him out to Vegas. He's on a... He's on Pregnizone, which is a steroid that they use to help treat some stuff like this. And you're not supposed... He wasn't supposed to train. He went and trained, and they started coughing up blood. He got uh, very emotional about it. A few people... Uh, I know Brian Campbell on the Morning Combat show, uh, YouTube show, which is a great show, by the way. He mentioned that he had been on Pregnizone at one point or another, and it messed with his emotions. Uh, That's not the first time I've heard that. I don't have enough data to state empirically those are side effects. But it wouldn't shock me. I'll just say it like that. Uh, So maybe, again, the medication being a little over-emotional. Training when he shouldn't be. We'll see if he sticks to retirement or not. Um... We've seen other fighters in kind of similar situations just be frustrated, and that be and that kind of stemming from that. I mean, remember, people, um, when Khabib broke his rib after uh, one of his, he had that long layoff for like knee injuries. Then he busted a rib and said, he said publicly, "I'm thinking about hanging him up. I don't know if I can keep doing this like this." And I mean, went on to you know, the great great successes he achieved. Sometimes you're just frustrated in the moment. So I don't know. And look, man, well, then, then, God, then, okay. Um, Shemaev is, he lives and trains out of Sweden, I believe. He is, I believe, ethnically Chechen. I'm fairly certain of that. Let me double check. I, I, I want to be, I want to be clear about this in case I am wrong. Um. see russian born swedish yeah chechen ethnicity okay because a social media post came out from the chechen dictator i call him that because that's what he is if you look at their governmental structure he is he was not elected he's uh, he is not a king there's no monarchy he was not elected in some sort of democratic or representative process he to the best of my knowledge, that is the most appropriate term for him. He's a dictator. And I've and his laundry list of uh, human rights violations are fairly well documented at this point. You can look those up on your own time. Had a social media post where he said, uh, Kamjad, I would like to, you know, the Chechen people are watching you. Uh, you know, don't give up. I've, you just, I can't imagine that, man. I cannot imagine a guy like Ramzan Kadyrov, as I'm trying to recover from this serious, serious illness, 
and I'm not talking about your whatever your beliefs about how the pandemic has been handled. COVID is a COVID is a very very serious illness. There is no debate about this between rational people. And Shemaev's case in particular was very very serious. He's still dealing with it. To try to recover from a serious illness in the public eye, to have the UFC president uh, you know, putting pressure on you, and then to have more than just the, the professional pressure that Dana White could put on you, to have someone like Kadyrov come out and say, you know, buddy, the Chechen people are watching you, man. You really should. You, you should uh, reconsider. What do you say to that guy? I mean, I've... It's one of the reasons that when certain fighters pal around with Kadyrov, I'm very hesitant to completely throw them under the bus. Now, again, I'm sure I have no doubt there are some fighters who agree with Kadyrov's worldview and his you know, policies and his rule and whatnot. And bad people become fighters just as just like good people become fighters. Wide range of you know, belief systems. I so I don't doubt that there's some that think he is a good guy doing the right doing the right thing. I don't agree with that assessment, but I also there's also fighters I have very little doubt go along with this to remain in somewhat good graces with a very very powerful figure in that region of the world. If you have family that lives in that region, um yeah, and that guy says, "Hey, I want to take photos with you." Let me get you know, come to the palace. Let me give you a gift. Let me be seen with you. Say some nice things about, you know, what it means to be from this part of the world. Inspire the youth. You know, yeah, you kind of go along with that because there's very, very, there's very few people, man, who with if that's your situation would stand on principle. I don't know that I would. You'd like to think you would. I'd like to think I would, but I don't know. And I would not know until I was put in that position what I would do. I just don't. And so I'm very... I, I try not to throw a tremendous amount of blame at certain fighters for their behavior when it comes to that. Others? Others I have no problem uh, putting on blast because their considerations are very different. Um, for whatever that's worth. But yeah, Kadyrov came out and said, no, I don't think he's retiring. The Chechen people are watching him. You have, you know, the ruler of a country. Well, I mean, Chechnya is part of the Russian Federation, but... You have, you know, someone of that political power. Like, real... Again, not Dana White you know, career you know, career influence, which is not in Which is certainly not to be dismissed. But Dana White's not going to have anybody killed. <laughs> you know? That's just well beyond his purview. <laughs> well beyond anything he's ever done. To the best of all available public knowledge. Man, I don't know. I don't know how I would react to that. So I don't know what Shemaev's going to do. We'll have to see. We'll just have to see how he recovers. I hope he does. Man. I mean, as a fan, I do hope he recovers and I hope he fights again. He beat the crap out of a lot of people in that short period of time and did so in dominant fashion. Yeah, I want to watch him fight again. But more than that, I kind of want him to have a meaningful life. And if if his case of COVID was bad enough that fighting is no longer a realistic option for him, that'll suck. But I'd rather he 
you know, have a good life than have a short, worse life that entertained me, you know? So, yeah, I I don't know what's going to happen with him, but there suffice to say there's a lot of pressures being brought to bear on that one guy. I thought we'd just let him try and recover, yeah? Uh, all right, that is it for the news. Uh, let me check Twitter one more time, and we'll see if anything crazy broke. All right, does not look like anything crazy broke. So let's do plugs real quick, and then we will get out of here. Long one this time around, but nothing uh, can't be helped. Uh, okay. What am I doing this week? Uh, there will be a review for Raya and the Last Dragon, the latest Disney movie, uh, this Tuesday on Damn You Hollywood. That'll be fun. Myself, Mark Radlich, Alexis Haina. Last week, I got together with Mark, and we reviewed... It was just the two of us, I seem to recall, and... Oh, crap. We reviewed, um, Boss Level, the Hulu, the Hulu-exclusive action movie starring Frank Grillo. A lot of fun. Rather enjoyed that one. So you can listen to our review of that. Uh, Mark and I will be recording a review for the Netflix movie The Irishman that will be released at a later date. Uh, so, yeah. Take a week to watch that movie, but, yeah. <laughs> God. That movie. So be on the lookout for both of those in the near future. Last couple of weeks, we did a TV party for the Ian Winding... Uh, the, the It's on Amazon Prime, the series Too Old to Die Young. Weird show. Long podcast, myself, Mark, and Jesse Starcher. Um, you can also find me... What's the other thing? Ah, I can't remember. I swear there's another thing. Oh, yeah. My Star Trek... I appeared on the uh, David Wright, friend of uh, the Rattleton Broadcasting Network, has a, uh, pitched a Star Trek retrospective series. I was part of their first one uh, several months ago when we talked about the original... The movie's featuring the original cast. That was me, David, Mark, I'll say Andrew Graham. Might have been somebody else, too, but I think at least the four of us there. This time around, it was for discussing the Next Generation movies. That set of four it was just me and David. So we had a lot of fun. That's finally been edited down and released. You can find that in the W2M network. So please do give a uh, listen to that if you're so inclined. And yeah, be back next week for more of this. And see you Saturday. You can also find me Fridays covering WWE SmackDown and the Wrestling Zone to 411 Mania. So stop by there. Have a gander at my thoughts on some pro wrestling. That's always a good time. And we'll see you all next week. Thank you all again very much. Until next time, stay safe out there and please continue to be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>